0: West Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. I don't know how Rocky follows a prayer in a story like that, but uh, Rocky teaches us in that lesson uh, uh, an amazing truth about life, and it's not just the truth that you shouldn't have as many sequels as Rocky has. Uh, it is the truth that all of us have in our lives, this idea of what going the distance means. And if we can't do that, then we are bums. And all of us secretly at some place in our life feel like we're bums, that we got something to prove. We've been in the series called Powerful Me about discovering how God sees us as the base of our self-esteem. and. We're going to finish that today, but next week we're going to start uh, our Lenten series and invite you all to a leap of faith. We're going to tell you more about that next week. But as part of that series next week, we're going to talk about uh, start a series on called called Powerful Purpose, how we can more deeply clarify the reason God has made us to exist, the very good purpose He has for our lives. And actually next week's going to be a really fun message because I think if if we want to understand how our purpose is in God, I can't really understand that without hearing from God. So next week's message, is to kick off that series, is going to be totally dedicated towards how do we grow in confidence that we understand and each of us individually can hear God's voice. Uh, This next series, just to give you a little bit of warning and invitation, is going to be another Q&A series. We're going to have Q&A at the end of every message. So I want you to remember next week to bring your smartphones, your tablets, your laptops, uh, so that you could submit questions and engage in that message at any point throughout that time. We'll give more direction on how to do that next week. But, uh, in addition to that, because prayer is so important to us discovering our sense of purpose and clarifying that, we're also going to engage for the first time uh, since I've been here, Ash Wednesday, which is an ancient tradition of a day of prayer. And we're going to invite you to start your leap of faith over Lent through a day of prayer where you set some special a time to pray. We're going to have the facility open from 8 in the morning to 8 in the evening. The last hour from 7 to 8 o'clock is actually going to be a joint corporate prayer and worship service. But you can come any time throughout the day. Stay for as short as you want or as long as you want. We're going to have uh, three different uh, guide, self-guided uh, ways to help you pray in the auditorium uh Jeremy and a number of other people are going to be setting the entire gym up as a as an experiential prayer labyrinth that will uh just be a really interesting self-guided time for you to connect with God. So I want to invite you to set that day aside. It's Wednesday, March 5th, a week from this Wednesday. Um, so today maybe I'm a little weird. Uh maybe uh we're all a little weird. You can tell me that in a couple of moments. But I continue throughout life to have these moments that challenge my self-esteem, who I think I am. I, I catch myself ruminate, ruminating at times on these old things. Uh, like a couple weeks ago, I was I was just pray, praying over some minor little concern, not even a big deal with my kids, just praying for them in their situation they were in. And as I was sitting there praying, all of a sudden my mind started to go back to these really big issues in my life years ago, some of the issues in my kids' life and some of the issues in my life decades ago, and I started, I started getting into these old arguments of those times when I felt like things were unfair or where I wasn't given the break I wanted to or where my kids weren't given that same break, and I caught myself having arguments in my head from years or even decades ago. Now, am I the only one who does that, or am I the only one weird here? I, I think probably not. I think most of us do that from time to time. What's that all about? When we do that. Or let me ask you this. How many of you here would say or have said about yourself, I find it really hard to receive a gift? Now some of you love receiving gifts, so let me ask you this. Maybe if you love receiving gifts, some of you have actually said, I find it really, really hard to accept a compliment without having to do a little bit of uh, deflecting or self-defacing or, or just say, nah, that's not me. What is that all about? What do both of those things show us about what our self-esteem is built on? As much as we may live and look confident... That ruminating that we do on decade-old issues, the struggles we have of comparison, of competition, the inability for us to receive gifts or the difficulty for us to receive gifts and compliments, it all speaks to something about what our self-esteem is based upon. One of the guiding premises that's really reinforced in our text today as well for this whole series is then that true change happens... From the inside out. Now that's, that's so cliche, right? So let me practically illustrate that. We typically solve our problems and approach life through changing our behaviors. Right? We make a bad decision in relationships, so what do we do? We set aside time to spend more time in that relationship or we go and we learn a few communication skills so that we can get better or we go and take time to figure out, okay, where is my personality? Where is their their personality? How do we clash? And we change a few of our behaviors so we can relate better to one another. That's all good, but today's text says that the problem that we face In our self-esteem, the problem we face in our relationships is much deeper. It's an issue of the heart. The reason we can't sustain change in so many of those relationships, the reasons we repeat so many negative behaviors over and over again, the reason we can't stop working so much when we know we're working too much, the reason we have an issue trying to control our temper or not be as controlling or the ways that we struggle with reading people and avoiding miscommunication because we don't read them as well or, the, or even just our struggles about how we take care of ourselves physically and the fact that we don't always do what we think we should do. It goes to the base of what our self-esteem is built on, how we see God and how we see ourselves. Now, today's discussion deals more pointedly with this struggle in our self-esteem, and it also then provides us a couple avenues of hope through some checkpoints that we're going to look at. Let's uh, jump into the text. It's Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and it reads like this. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, and a God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and a God has raised us up with Christ and seated Him with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verses one through three really outline the struggle we face, and it uses this word, the dreaded word of sin, and it actually frames this dreaded word of sin that we don't like to always talk about in the concept of slavery. Now, Paul doesn't use the actual term slavery here like he uses it elsewhere, but when you look at the context, what he's talking about is the essence of slavery. He's basically saying to us that this slavery to sin drives our struggle with self-esteem and who we are and being free to be the people God intended us to be. He says we're helpless. We're helpless as a dead body is, he says in the text, completely enslaved, absolutely enslaved to the spirit of this age, the world, the kingdom of the air, the devil. Everyone is or has been completely, utterly, helplessly enslaved to sin. Now, isn't that nice? I usually don't like to spend a whole lot of time talking about the sin side of things on Sundays because I think the gospel is so much more good news. But today, Paul actually spends some time uh, looking at this, and I think it's really important for us to spend just a little bit extra time than I'm usually comfortable dealing with that in this setting for this reason. If we don't understand where we are, we can't understand how to get to where we want to be. So let's look at it a little more. Paul says the force behind this driving slavery that we all struggle with in our life is this. He says, the gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now, he uses a number of terms in here. Flesh. It's actually a Greek word, sarx, and it doesn't mean physical flesh as we would think. Actually, what sarx refers to is the self-centered human nature. Paul is saying that self-centeredness is what drives you and masters you and controls you. And it's not just a Pauline idea. This idea is all throughout Scripture. We can look all the way back to the very first temptation recorded in the Bible in Genesis, and that temptation is all about self-protection and self-centeredness, worrying about God is uh, and thinking that God may withhold something from us that we deserve, that we need. Paul says the reason we are slaves to sin, is because we all at our core have a self-centered heart. Now, St. Augustine and Martin Luther talk about this in their writings and talk about it as all of humanity's hearts are curved in on themselves, is what the term they use. Martin Luther uses the Latin phrase incurvitus inse, curving in on oneself. Luther extends this idea, I think in a really helpful way, amplifying on on what Paul teaches. He says, we're so self-justifying, we are so self-absorbed that we see all things, people, wealth, uh, money, marriage, family, even God, we see and we use them for our own purposes. Now, at first glance, that's kind of intriguing, but it's a little bit hard to swallow, isn't it? What does it mean? Well, it simply means this. We tend to evaluate everything in life, don't we, from what's in it for me. Now, think about it. What do you think is behind the la- the, the, what we term as the honeymoon phase in relationships, whether it's a honeymoon phase in marriage or whether it's a honeymoon phase in a new job? It doesn't matter. It's all the same. In early love, in infancy of love, That love is really more about how that relationship makes me feel about myself, what it means to me that I'm in relationship with someone so beautiful, so wonderful, so competent, so engaging, so fantastic. It's really all about how it makes me feel about myself. Now, when we think about self-centeredness, our minds can go to a number of different places. We can go to the fact that, well, yeah, self-centeredness can make you as, as evil as any dictator in the world, right? But, but we don't relate to that, right? Because that's not us. Many of us think about self-centeredness, and we think it's all about happiness. So we say that, we say that self-centeredness drives us toward happiness, but that's even in itself a, a limiting too narrow of an idea of what self-centeredness does for us. More often than not, I think that self-centeredness, curving in on our own heart of this whole what's in it for me causes us to be incredibly moral, if not religious. I mean, I look at my own life, that's been my own bent to sin. More than happiness, if I have always, I've struggled with thinking more than happiness, if I am moral, if I am kind, if I am right, if I make enough positive impact for good on other people, then I am good, I am successful, I am valuable, whether I'm happy or not. And if you have a strong, Ego, which I think all of us do, and need to feel good about yourself, which I think all of us do, then there is absolutely no better way for us to feel good about ourselves than to be moral and religious. Self-centeredness, actually, I think a lot of times, in fact, marketers and nonprofits will tell you this, self-centeredness drives so much of our serving of the needy. It makes us feel good, so we do it. It's really, we're a good child or we're generous because of what it says about us and how we get rewarded. It is really what happens for us. We're a good parent because it makes us feel good about ourselves. But even though there's moral there's moral good things in that that we want to be, at the base of all of our heart, if we're really honest, there is this what's in it for me and how it makes me feel. You know why I know that's true in my own life and why it's true in our lives? It's because if we weren't doing the good spouse, the good friend, the good parent, the good worker, the good boss thing for how it makes us feel then we deal with conflict a whole lot better and a whole lot differently, right? Because conflict wouldn't tank us. Because conflict wouldn't have any import on how we think about who we are and our self-esteem if we weren't doing those relationships for something in it for me, if my self-esteem wasn't tied to that. If we weren't doing those things for how it makes us feel, then our anxiety level wouldn't go high when we're not doing well. All of us, me, you, everyone, we're into this stuff for what's in it for me, and and we even face our relationship with God that way all too often. I will serve, I will give, I will follow if it makes me feel good. We make our faith decisions based upon that. If we pray and it doesn't turn out exactly like we want or as fast as we want, it isn't resolved, then we tank or we get disconnected or we back away from our faith. We get frustrated with God. Our faith, our practice of it, our church attendance is so often conditional on how it makes us feel. The text goes on and says that this, this slavery is driven by this word cravings, this inordinate desire, this drive in behind what we do and the motivations behind what what we do that determines our feelings behind this inward curving in on ourselves. And that word cravings is actually, let's, let's just use a more popular word we use all the time today. Addiction. When you are addicted to drugs, gradually you need more and more and more to get the same fix, right? If you're addicted to the applause of other people or your own glory, you never have enough. If you're addicted to your own definition of what makes you worth something in life, whether it's a good husband or a good wife or a good friend or a hard worker, or I'm successful or I'm a winner or I'm wealthy or I'm a selfless servant of others, if you define your self-esteem on any of these accomplishments, you're in it for you. And self-centeredness, like addiction, like drugs, leaves us constantly needing more and leaves us eventually miserable in life. And that's the reason why on my bed praying for my kids, I find myself ruminating of old comparisons and projecting those things because for some reason, even though I have this altruistic desire for my kids to have a more positive, better experience, there's something about those comparisons that say who I am and what my worth is that still I'm weak to. You see, when we don't recognize in ourself, the absolute level to which we are curved in our on ourselves, the absolute level to which there is self-interest in almost every one of our relationships and decisions, we will become more angry and anxious, we'll become harder, and we will f- struggle to find and be secure in that powerful sense of me that God wants us to experience being created in His image. We just don't get to that powerful place naturally. So, how do we live in the powerful promise God has given us now and uh, for the end of all time? The fact that he said we're completely secure, we're his kids. We have an inheritance that's guaranteed an amazing resolution to every problem and every pain that is guaranteed in time. And in the meantime, that he's given us every spiritual blessing, as we've looked at the last few weeks, to help empower us, to get us through life to that end. Well, we live in the promise, I think, by habits, by checkpoints in our lives that help us identify when our heart is curving in on itself and redirecting our hearts to God. Paul actually uses a couple fascinating terms to describe this that I want to look at a little bit further uh, of how we get to this powerful place in God. He says in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, many of us, I would dare to say most of us probably struggle with this gift idea, especially in our faith. You know, a true gift is, it's not something we work for, we work hard for. It's, a true gift is not the old naughty and nice Santa list that we have to be good enough to deserve. It's not something I get and then I have to pay back. But the reality is those are all default motivations that we fall prey to in life in viewing religion. And why wouldn't it be? Because we operate that way with one another. I mean, Steve Rockwell talked about it a couple weeks ago in his message. How awful is it to be over-gifted, right? That's a terrible feeling. You may find it hard to receive gifts to the extent... That you find it hard to receive gifts will be to the extent that the powerful sense of who God wants you to be and think about yourself, a powerful sense of of self-esteem, will be elusive to that same extent. To the extent that that you struggle to have gifts, you will continue to struggle with anxiety and worry and fear and conflict, and you'll lack the sense of inner rest, the peace, the joy, and the contentment that God wants us to have And that we so much desire. The text says you're not saved by anything you do. You are not deserving of Jesus' sacrifice by anything you do. But it's there. Nonetheless. It's a gift he considers worth giving to us joyfully. How would your life change? How would your life change if you saw everything as a gift? Now. Now. You know, for some of you who've been married a long time like me, you may have to go back into the cobwebs of your memory because you've gotten into this habit where you you buy your own gift for yourself and then have your spouse wrap it, right? Or you tell your spouse what to buy you and they get it and there's really no surprise. So go back in the cobwebs of your memory to the last time one of you received a gift from someone you really respected or loved greatly and it was a complete surprise. Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember the the feeling of curious excitement as you held the unopened gift in your hand? Do you remember the smile that you had of feeling so blessed when you realized what it was? Do you remember thinking how special you are because of the smile on the face of the person who gave it to you? You see, if we saw everything as a gift, I think we'd approach life like that. I think we'd feel curious. I think we'd feel expected. I think we'd feel hopeful. We'd feel loved. We'd feel secure, special. But we wouldn't have to compare ourselves to anybody else, and we'd be equally happy when somebody else got a gift, and we'd have the same curious joy. I think living that way is really attractive. Paul gives us another checkpoint beyond the gift. He says, "...so that no one can boast." Now, why would Paul say the great thing about the Christian life is it's the end of boasting? I mean, that's essentially what he's saying in the text. What is boasting? We think of it a lot of times just as pride and, and just as, as bragging. But what's, what's really the intent behind it? It's really something that is more easily explained when we think about sporting events and what people do before sporting events. Or, or maybe back in Paul's day, it's probably more appropriate what the armies did the night before a battle. They would talk about who had the, the pointiest sticks, the longest spears, the strongest and fastest warriors as a way of what? As a way of bolstering their sense of self, their confidence to face life. And confidence in who God has made you to be, for me, is really another way of saying you have a high self-esteem when you get to that point of living life confident in who God has called you to be. We've talked about that, how, how we can view ourselves as powerful and good. And why we said that? We've said not because we're currently acting that way, not because we're sinless, uh, but because we're creation, created by God in His image, good, perfect, beautiful. That story precedes the story of sin in our lives. Sin certainly damages that. But even looking beyond that, we can consider ourselves powerful and good because Jesus considered it worth it. Not not worth it in the sense that you earned it. Not worth it in the sense that you deserve it. But he considered the price of the gift he gave you worth it to redeem you back to that perfectly created image that he originally created you to be. It's worth paying because of his love for you, yes, and because of his creation of you, who you are. Now some struggle with that still because they think that, they think that, uh, thinking of ourselves as powerful, as strong, as good, as beautiful, as gifted is, is prideful. But pride has absolutely nothing to do with admitting strength. Neither does humility have anything to do with, with denying anything good in you or denying your strength or saying you're just a corrupted sinner because that is not the beginning of the story. Those are all religious aberrations of pride and humility. Pride is seeing your strengths and not worshiping God with them. Seeing your strengths and not thanking God, not treating them as the amazing gifts the joyous gifts that they are, rather than rather using your strengths and and, and the things you're good at to bolster your worth, rather than base your worth in your relationship with God and the fact that you're His child. How odd is it for someone to receive a beautiful gift, a gift that they so desperately really want, the the dream of their life, only to see them say, no, I, I really can't do that. No, I really can't accept that. No, that's not mine. I'm really not worth receiving that. And then to dismiss it and give it back or to put it in a drawer. Back to boasting as a checkpoint. What would life be if we didn't boast? What would life look like? I'm going to borrow some distinctions from Tim Keller here that he contrasts the life of boasting and the opposite. His first one is anger versus contentment. Do Do you believe everything you have is a gift more than you deserve, if that's true, then no matter how life goes, you're content. But if you find yourself walking through life and you're tempted and you see this need in you to boast, this need to bolster yourself, then really underneath that there's anger. There's stuff going on that says life is not going well and I'm mad at life and I'm mad at God and you work hard and you're demanding that you work hard and you deserve more. Another distinction he gives is disdain versus acceptance. Now, many of us here define a lot of our life as we are very hard workers. And that's all good and that's great. But when being a hard worker becomes the source of your confidence to face the world, then you will disdain anyone who does not work hard like you do. Right? People of different values... Different morals, different class, different looks, you fill in the blank. Whatever you put in that blank, there's a difference in. Whatever is in the blank, you will disdain and you will tend to joke about. You'll say things like, oh, I would never do that or I'm better than that, I'll never do that. Or you'd be like the reporter with Chris Christie a few months back who said, you talk about fiscal discipline, but how about some physical discipline? Eat a salad. And it's disdain. Because for that reporter, part of his self-esteem is built upon how good they look physically. If you disdain people of other political parties, if you disdain people of other religions, look inward at yourself. Understand what's going on in our hearts when we do that. And if we really are honest, we are miserable, we're insecure, we're cynical, we're not accepting God's view of who we are that powerful, loving view of who we are or God's view of other people when, we di- when we're disdaining. You see, because if we're a sinner saved by the gift of grace, we'll forgive. And we don't have any need to compare ourselves to others. Because the only way to continue to keep a grudge, the only way to disdain another is to stay angry at something and be certain that we are superior to them. And that superior part is part of your definition of who you are and your self-esteem. And it's not God's view of you. So you walk around angry. We walk around proud. We fall prey to ruminating like I, like I did in the comparison things. You see, a sinner saved by the gift of grace doesn't walk around life feeling they got snubbed or that they didn't have all, we didn't have all my rights given to me or afforded to me. If you're, if you're living a life of faith and grace, we don't need to boast. We can stand confident. We can be truly powerful. No longer mastered by anything. No longer fearful of conflict or judgment or others' opinions. No longer fearful that your shortcomings will expose you and that you have to be embarrassed of them why because you've already acknowledged you have those shortcomings you already have acknowledged you've had those cra- cravings you've been that slave to sin in ways that you can't even fully recognize in life therefore you're no longer afraid of anybody's feedback right or wrong whether they give it to you in a healthy way or whether they give it to you in an immature way that's hurtful, you are no longer afraid of conflict or feedback in your life. You know, you think moments, you know, when you think of the moments that defined your personal struggles with the areas you struggle with a lower sense of self-esteem, what were those moments? Aren't those moments, those times in your life when somebody gave you verbally or non-verbally painful feedback? See, the way you get, the way we all get from a corrupted self-esteem built on curving in on ourselves, built on self-centeredness, built on living life only through what's in it for me, to that powerful place God wants us to live, is to have habits of regularly checking in with where we're at, what's going on inside of me, in my thinking, in my feelings, noting the times that we have those feelings of the need to boast or bolster ourselves. Noting those times when we were viewing life and our salvation and we're not viewing it through the gift paradigm. We're thinking about earning it. When we're not believing the truths that Paul has talked about through this whole series and not seeing ourselves the way God sees us. Paying attention to what's going on inwardly so we can change from the inside out. Acknowledging the reality and then choosing to worship and pray and meditate on how God sees us, even to prayerfully imagine and anticipate and focus on Paul's conclusion to this whole section today. Verse 10, he says, For we are God's handiwork, that's a loaded word, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. For us to be able to think about that with excitement, the fact that God has a meaningful life planned for each one of us, a meaningful life that involves His plan to use you to restore people, to help people find Him and become free from the ravaging effects of the cravings, of the addiction to sin, of the slavery to sin that so damages us and our relationships, free to be the powerful people He originally created us to be curving outward towards God and others instead of curving inward. Next week we're going to start to explore that more. Remember to bring your smartphones, your tablets, and your laptops so you can interact with that. For now, uh, I want to give you a couple of opportunities to respond if the worship team and Elise can come now. If you're one here who you find yourself struggling with self-esteem, you find yourself struggling with these cravings, this sense of constantly being enslaved, the difficulty of getting past some of these things that undermine your life, and you've never responded to Jesus to accept this free gift of his love and forgiveness, I want to invite you to do that today. And you do that simply this way. You do it any time during the worship time or after service. Just step out and go talk to one of the elders or the prayer people over in the back prayer area or just come find myself or one of the staff. And we would love to help introduce you to that gift of following Jesus. If you're here today and you've struggled with the fear of conflict, you've, you've really struggled with anxiety, you can relate to the fact of that ruminating that, you know, we struggle with. And I want you just to enter this time of worship now as we continue to, to respond to God and just breathe a prayer of saying, God, thank you that you've forgiven me of all that. Thank you that you've set me free of all that. And just worship the God who is so amazing, loves you so much, who thinks so highly, so highly of you. As I was finishing this message this last week, um, Elise, my daughter, my beautiful daughter walked in from school, and, uh, and she had uh, walked home and, and taken some pictures and told us about it, and I just went, wow, that's, that's an application uh, to this whole series. And I wanted her to share that with you today and invite you to the next song, which I think her reflection leads us to as well. Lord, thank you that we forever hold your gaze. Thank you for the beauty of that picture. Thank you that you want us to think on those thoughts. Lord, I pray for everyone here who thinks, who struggles like we all do with those times of thinking lowly of ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would break us free, that you would help us see how amazingly you've created us, how beautiful you've created us, how strong you've created us, And lead us to that place of confident freedom in worship of You and in being a blessing to our our community. In Jesus' name, Amen. Go this week. Notice when your heart's turning inward. And turn it out with songs like that. That God would be your vision. That you would see yourself the way He sees you. Since you are created in His image, you are a lot like Him. And that's what He wants you to be. See yourself that way. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.